Well, good morning. It's great to see you guys today. We are going to be talking about the greatest Christian ever today. But before we jump in, I just want to give you guys a heads up. Next Sunday, we will not be meeting for church services like we normally do. It's the one Sunday of the year where uh, we don't have church services because it's the Arlington County Fair. So you can actually, you're welcome to come here next Sunday morning, but it'll be a whole different sort of an experience for you. Okay, so just be forewarned, uh, and we will see you guys back in two weeks. And in the meantime, this coming weekend, it's a great opportunity. To maybe if you've missed out on some messages along the way, you can check out our podcast. You can go online. All of the sermons you can find for free. You can watch videos, listen to audios, whatever. Or maybe it's just a cool way to spend a, a morning, Sunday morning with God and carve out that time and do something different um, this, this uh, next Sunday. So... Um, Wanted to make sure you were all aware of that, but um, today we are um, we're continuing in this series called "Oh, the Places You'll Go," and as I said, the title is "The Greatest Christian Ever." So I thought it'd be fun, and hopefully, a number of you logged in on your phone and uh, you're ready to to do a little online interactive polling. We're going to talk about some of the greatest ever. So here's the first question. I got four questions for you this morning. Who is the greatest musical artist ever? Greatest musical artist ever. Is it A, you just text the letter, okay? So is it A, Elvis Presley, B, Ray Charles, C, The Beatles, or D, Michael Jackson? The greatest artist ever, musical artist. Feel free just to go ahead and text those in, and uh, let's see where we stand here. Okay, looks like Michael Jackson is... Uh, Getting the most votes. You know, 930 service also had Michael Jackson. So I don't know, maybe, maybe this church knows something that Rolling Stone magazine and all of these other websites, everyone, there was actually unanimous, could not find a single one that dissented from the British invasion, the Beatles, the greatest artists ever. According, what do they know though, right? We, we know it was actually Michael Jackson. All right. So uh, question number two, let's talk about U.S. presidents for a second. Who is the greatest... United States president ever. I'll give you the choices while it's popping up. Was it A, George Washington, B, Benjamin Franklin, C, Abraham Lincoln, or D, Franklin D. Roosevelt? All right, let's see. Where are we coming in on these choices here? Ah, uh, yes, yes. In that moment, don't you just wish it wasn't anonymous, you know? Um, oh, yeah, that's excellent. All right, so... Um, Abraham Lincoln is pretty much the unanimous, the unanimous choice on this one. But um, we all know the deal with Benjamin Franklin, right? What was the deal with him? He was actually not a president, but he's on the $100 bill. Thought I'd throw that one in there just to kind of keep you guys awake. All right. Question three of four. Greatest basketball player ever. Who was the greatest basketball player? Was it Wilt Chamberlain? Was it Michael Jordan? Was it LeBron James? Or... Letter D, our own, very own Pastor John Sly. You know, he did play basketball, and he still plays some basketball, and he's a lot better than me, I'll tell you that. I don't know if he's the greatest. Let's see, let's, man, you guys, there's some love right there. I, I do have to say, though, Wilt Chamberlain, check this out. The 1961-62 season, Wilt Chamberlain averaged for the season 50 points and 25 rebounds per game for the entire season. That deserves more than 3% of the vote, but I agree, Michael Jordan with, with Pastor John coming in second place. That's fantastic. We got to make sure he gets that on his resume. Okay, final question, and here is the all-important one we're going to be talking about today. 
Who is the greatest Christian ever? Who's the greatest Christian ever? Is it letter A, the Apostle Paul? Is it B, St. Francis? C, Mother Teresa? Or D, Martin Luther King Jr.? Where do we stand on this one? All right, let's get in, let's get in there. Some of you are like, who is St. Francis of Assisi? I don't even know who that person is. Is that a trick question? Um, all right, well... According to um, my vote, you guys have done well on this question because um, I definitely believe that the Apostle Paul that we read about in the New Testament of the Bible was the greatest Christian of all time. And for those of you who maybe don't necessarily think so, let me just give you, um, let me try and make a case. So there are 27 books of the New Testament, 27 these little letters or accounts, and of the 27, 13 of them have Paul's name on them. That's basically half of the entire New Testament um, attributed to Paul. Um, The other thing about Paul that is just amazing is um, he was Jewish, yet felt this clear call, and we'll talk about this today, to go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to non-Jewish people. And um, really, when so many of the other followers of Jesus and disciples were, were actually just really just spreading this within the Jewish community, Paul championed that this is a message for the entire world. doesn't matter your background, your ethnicity, your, uh, your, you know, your kind of religious upbringing or whatever. And then finally, to me, what is probably the most important is that Paul really championed the essence of, of the gospel, a essence of Christianity. And what I mean by that is there were so many um, early Christians, including very famous disciples like Peter, who were really wrestling with all the Jewish customs and traditions and things that, that um, people were still following. And so, you know, they were, they were struggling with that because, because traditions die hard, right? I mean, you know, this cultural stuff dies really hard. And so, um, and so Paul was the one saying, listen, it's only by faith in Jesus. It doesn't matter if you get circumcised. It doesn't matter the kind of food you eat. You know, all these other things that were such an important part of the culture at that time. Paul, who was Jewish himself, railed against this stuff and in fact confronted Peter in this head-to-head matchup and basically called Peter out and said, you're perverting the gospel. This isn't what Jesus taught us. He championed it. And, and really, we come to... to for, we give great credit to Paul for this, for helping us to realize that ultimately we are, it's ultimately just by the, the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ that we are in a right relationship with God. So here's the question for today, okay? Maybe I haven't convinced you, but let's just go with it. Paul is the greatest Christian ever, all right? So the question is, what made Paul so effective? What was it that made him so great? Besides the obvious, which is that God's hand was clearly upon his life. But here's what I'm after. Okay, so God's hand is on his life. But what did that actually then look like? How did that play out? What kind of qualities were then manifest in Paul that made him such an amazing Christian? Because I think we can learn a lot then about what the Christian life should look like for us. So um, why don't we say a word of prayer and then we'll jump into today's message. Um, God, we just want to say thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here and uh, to open the Bible and to take a look and try and figure out what it means for our lives. God, I ask that you would speak to each one of us this morning through your word. In Christ's name, amen. So 
Paul writes this uh, wonderful letter to a church in modern-day Turkey, church in Ephesus. It's called the Letter to the Ephesians. We're in the third chapter today. And um, we start in verse 1. Paul writes, For this reason, and the reason was, we talked about last week, which was that the church is united. It's not divided. There's not different groups. We are one family in Jesus Christ. So he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus... Now, he is actually in prison in Rome because he was going around proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So that's why he's saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For the sake of you Gentiles, this was primarily the audience that he was called to preach to. And Gentile was essentially a word back then that just was used to refer to a non-Jewish person. So he's saying then, surely you have heard, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. He says, surely you've heard. And the reality is, just about everybody had, because Paul had a dramatic encounter with God that sent shock waves through the early church. It rocked the early church. We'll talk more about that in just a second. He says, in reading this then, You'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it's now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. As we talked about last week, that in Christ Jesus, there's not Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews. There's not these different factions or whatever. It's just we are one family. We are all children of the Most High God. Then he says, verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So then he's declaring to them, he's saying, listen, God has chosen me to go out and be the messenger for Jesus and what Jesus has done. Surely you've heard about this. Now, many of us in this room, we have heard about what happened to Paul, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So let me give you a brief synopsis of Paul's life. So Paul was born in modern-day Turkey in a city called Tarsus. And uh, he grew up there. He was raised Jewish, very, very uh, smart guy, and actually studied under one of the finest rabbis and um, was so just religious and so zealous for God that when, uh, after Jesus was crucified and there were these people, these followers of Jesus and then others that claimed that they had seen the resurrected Jesus Christ and they began to say, hey, Jesus wasn't just some rabbi, he wasn't just some prophet, he wasn't just some man, he's actually God. Like he, he was raised from the dead, he appeared to us, he ascended into heaven. And as they're saying this, here's... Here's how Paul received this and many other of his contemporaries in the Jewish faith. Paul's like, that's blasphemy to God. I mean, there's just one true God and he cannot be seen and he can't be in a human body. So basically, Paul went on a mission and his mission was simply to stamp out this heresy. It was, he is going to put down this whole thing. How could this human being named Jesus of Nazareth, how could he possibly be God? That's a perversion to actual, like, to, to the true God, the one true God that, that he understood. 
And so check this out. In, in the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, this is one of the earliest historical records of the first church. Okay, And Paul, who was also known as Saul, Saul was his Jewish name, Paul was his Roman name. Okay, So very common back then, you have two names. And so he shows up in this historical record of the early church. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So what would happen is they would be imprisoned, these followers of Jesus would be imprisoned, then they would be beaten, and then they would be killed for their faith. And this is what Paul was doing. And then one day, Paul was journeying to a place called Damascus. And um, he was continuing his mission, trying to round up um, Christians. And as he was traveling, all of a sudden, this magnificent light came out of heaven, and he was struck blind. He was actually blind for several days. And this voice just comes out of nowhere, and, and he doesn't know what the heck's going on, but it actually turns out to be the voice of Jesus, who is basically telling Paul, listen, you are on the wrong team, man. Like, you're, you think that you're doing this great thing for God, and you're actually stopping the work of God in the world right now. And so Paul, deeply, deeply humbled by this, ends up going to this town and meeting this guy who, who heals him of his blindness, and then Paul is basically given this calling to then go and preach the gospel, to preach the message of Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. You can imagine how incredibly humbling it would be. Think about it. Paul loved God, but totally mistaken, okay? Loved God. And realizing you're on the wrong team, realizing that you're actually thinking you're doing something for God and you're flying in the face of God. And so check out what Paul writes next in his letter. So he's just told them he's, he's this servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace. And look at the next verse, verse eight. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Paul calls himself less than the least. And it really makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, how humbling was that? He was going around and actually killing the people who were trying to advance the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God was doing in the world. And so if you look at his past, he is so deeply humbled by his past. But also, if you, if you look at Paul and you read a lot of his letters and his writings, what you see is that Paul wasn't just humbled by what happened in his past, but he actually was humbled by his present as well. And this is one of the things I love about Paul. Check this out in a letter that he wrote to the Romans. This is also found in the New Testament of the Bible. Chapter 7, just taking a couple verses here, 18 and 19 and 24 and 25. Look at what Paul writes. He says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
You may be looking at this being like, man, this is the most messed up greatest Christian that's ever walked the face of this earth. But I tell you, this is what I love about the Apostle Paul. This is actually what I believe makes Paul so great. He was so deeply humble. And he was so real. Don't you love how real it is? I mean, right there in the Bible, you got this guy just being like, I can't, I want to do this thing, I can't do it. And the evil stuff I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. Man, that's good stuff, man, because that's real life, isn't it? That's real. You know what's so interesting to me? So, so many of us, you know, who are part of this church, we have come to know and understand how much God loves us. We've, we, and, and we have this joy now, we have this peace, like God's done stuff in our lives as a result of understanding what faith in Jesus is all about. And, you know, we all have different ways of, of wanting to share that and spread that. And I know there aren't many in this room who are, you know, going to want to take a Bible across somebody's head to try and pound that into them. But the reality is this. In our own way, when, we, when we're sitting here in a service or we're listening to a sermon or we're listening to music or whatever, there are moments where we go, wow, I wish so-and-so was here right now. The people we have in our lives, I'm like, God, they... Their life would be so much better if they just knew the love of God. They could understand this truth. And yet, we're so intimidated. I don't know if, if, if you feel like I do, but like, it's like there's this so much pressure because you go and, and, and you want to have that conversation. You just, you just want someone to know the love that, that you've experienced, right? And, and so you, you, you're thinking, okay, I'm going to have this conversation with them. But, but then what if they ask me that zinger question? that I have absolutely no answer for. And it freaks you out. Because like, I don't know, and then I'll be stumped, and then that's it, man. Like, it blew our chance, and you know, there's no turning back. Or here's, here's one. Well, gosh, if I have all this joy and hope and love and peace, then, I mean, I certainly, I, I gotta be that way, like, all the time. I can't have a bad day. I, I, and, and you know what? I, now that, you know, I've got this great love of God and his spirit in me, and I'm empowered, I mean, I can't fall to temptation. I can't have these different struggles. I certainly can't tell anybody about them. Don't, don't you feel that pressure? But here's the crazy thing. It's humility. It's actually when we say, you know what? I don't know. God is a great mystery. It's, it's when we say, you know, I don't feel joyful today, but I know that I still have that joy and that peace and that love of God, but I'm just having trouble grasping it today. When, we, when we're real about the struggle, we say, you know what? I just, yeah, I blew it today, but that's what's so awesome about God. When we're real in those moments like that, that's actually the thing that's so endearing. See, humility is so incredibly attractive. Think about the people in your own life who at times in your journey people of faith who have been so impactful to you, who've influenced your life. It's probably not people who had all the answers and never struggled and were pretty darn just so super self-assured of exactly what they believed and all that, right? It probably wasn't. Maybe there's a few. But for the great majority of, it was, of us, it was actually someone who was deeply, deeply humble. So here's the thing. You might be going, okay, so is the takeaway just got to just be humble. All right, let's just muster some more of that humility because that's a great trait. That's a great quality. And here's the deal. It's not about being humble because that's just not the way it works, okay? 
then you'll be all prideful that you're so humble. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. You can't just decide, I'm going to be humble. Okay, walk out, be humble. No, no, no. It's not about being humble. It's about being humbled. And there's a big difference with that last D on the end. It's about being humbled. And let me try and tell you what I mean. So two weekends ago, there was a little man camping uh, weekend that we did here at, at Grace. And we had a bunch of guys go down into uh, the Shenandoah Mountains. And um, we spent a weekend together. And the kind of the signature thing that we did that weekend was on Saturday morning, we hiked to the top of Old Rag Mountain. Any Old Rag Mountain hiker fans? Anybody done that? It's an awesome hike, isn't it? You can like be excited about that, you know, if you want to. Because, man, it is, it is intense. And especially the final mile to the top, it is just these massive rocks. I mean, look at these things. You're, you're going down into little crevices and, and scrambling through tunnels and then up over big boulders. And I mean, it's, it's good stuff. If you've never done that hike and you like to hike, I highly recommend it. And so um, we, we were doing this hike. And I, I just want to tell you, we had guys of different shapes and sizes, uh, young and old and various uh, levels of physical fitness. And, you know, we were just all, we were, we were kind of a motley crew, if you will. Okay. There, there's uh, most of us up there at the top. And, um, and so, man, and we were all in together. Like we were, you know, we're all going up. We're all coming down. We're going to do this thing. We're men, you know? And, um, and so we get to the top and we, we make our descent and we get, it was this huge loop and we, we make the, the descent back and we're standing at the trailhead, which says, you know, old rag hike and it gives you how long it is and, and a little description and everything. And we're standing there just kind of celebrating our achievement. You know what I'm saying? We're just, you know, just kind of, yeah, that was good, you know? And then we're, we're trying to figure out about how long it took us. Because, you know, we spent like an hour at the top having lunch. And, and we're like, how long did it actually take us to, to hike this beast? It was like a 15,000, 20,000-foot mountain, I think. Uh, you know, how long did it take us to, <laughs> to get all the way? <laughs> just kidding. Just, you know, to get all the way to the top of that bad boy. And we're down there, and it had rained considerably in the beginning of our start. And so we actually weren't really sure on our start time. So we're kind of guessing. What, what time did we start? How long did it take us? And, and as we're doing this, there's this, um, there's this little lady who is walking by at a good clip. We're all standing huddled around the, the trailhead marker, and she just comes barreling down the trail, and she's, she's walking at a nice pace. And she hears us, and at this point in the conversation, we're like looking at the trailhead sign, and we're going, about seven hours? You think about, it was about seven hours? It was seven? You know, and we're kind of just seven, seven rumbling around. And she, she's walking by us, and she catches it, and she kind of goes by our group. She just, and now this can be interpreted several different ways, depending on which guy you ask, okay? So this is very open to interpretation. But my interpretation was that she hears us talking, and we look so fresh, so, you know, just ready to go. It's like we hadn't even hiked at all. All right, it's about three in the afternoon, I think. So, so it was still feasible that we could have been there to, to start the hike. And uh, she hears this about seven hours, seven hours. And as she's breezing by, she just goes, guys, don't worry. It's not going to take you seven hours. It only took me three and a half. <laughs> oh, yeah. The only sound that could be heard after that moment was that of male egos shattering on the ground. <laughs> Because we were feeling really good about ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Really good. But compared to that little lady, we were nothing. <laughs> nothing. And here's the thing. 
That's called being humbled. That is. That's, that is what it means to be humbled. Now, in the Christian life, in your spiritual journey, what it means to be humbled is, and, and this may be a tiny bit controversial, okay? Because, you know, we have grown up and we are in, in kind of the self-esteem movement where you're so good. And if you want to be president, you can be, except for me because I was born in England. But, you know, everybody else, you can be president. You can do anything you want. You are awesome. You are awesome. You know, that, that's what we have been exposed to. That's what we, what we live in. Okay? But if we step outside of that and we think about who we are in light of who God is, all right? and again, this may be offensive to some, but just bear with me. When we think about who we are in light of a perfect, holy, infinite God who is righteous and just and all-loving and totally pure, without blemish, holy, perfection. Who are we in light of that? Is there a good about us? Absolutely. Yes. But do we think that somehow like the good stuff that we've done somehow like elevates us to an equal standing with God? It doesn't. And so, you know, this isn't something that you're going to hear just kind of going about your day tomorrow. But the reality is that in light of God's glorious standard, we all fall short. That's one of the truths of the Bible. It's actually the starting place for faith is by admitting we can't do this on our own. We fall short. And so in order to be humbled, I think it's just spending some time every now and then just to reflect on God's holiness, on God's goodness, on God's love, and the fact that we, we will not measure up to that, and that's okay. It actually takes a lot of pressure off you if you think about it. But it is deeply humbling. And so this is the first quality that Paul embodies that I think made him so incredibly effective. All right? But there's one other quality that goes along with it because he wasn't just deeply humble. Check out verse eight one more time. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, so deeply humble. But he says, although that's true, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. So what he's saying here is, although I am just like the worst, God in his grace has chosen me for something magnificent, something amazing. Verse 12, he says, in him, meaning in Jesus, and through faith in him, through faith in Jesus, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Does Paul think he can approach God with freedom and confidence based on his track record of what he was doing before the Damascus Road? No, no, no. Does Paul think he can approach Uh, God with freedom and confidence based on how well he's doing the evil that he doesn't want to do? Heck no, not at all. But in him, in Jesus Christ, and through faith in him, Paul says, I am so confident. See, so here's the deal, all right? And this is going to sound a little crazy, but just bear with me. Paul is both deeply humble and supremely confident Now, how do those two things work together? Deeply humble, supremely confident. And here's how it works. He's deeply humble in himself, in what he's done, but supremely confident in God and what God has done, in God's plans, in God's love, and in God's grace, and in God's power. And that is what makes Paul so incredibly 
effective. He was deeply, deeply humble and supremely confident at the same time. And you want to know something that's interesting about that? That right there is the essence of the Christian faith. That's it. When we fully grasp the Christian faith, when we fully understand what Jesus has done for us, we are deeply humbled because it's not about us. It never was and it never can be. And we are supremely confident in what he has done, his power, his promises, his faithfulness when we lose faith. That's Christianity. Now, I want to try and give you a little visual illustration to, to bring this home. Because I think for many of us, um, we can get a little bit confused or caught up with religion and Christianity. So let me, let me try and make a distinction here, and hopefully this will make sense, all right? So this ladder here represents religion. And really, no matter which world religion you pick, you can pick any of the major ones or even tiny little religions, any religion in the world, including, by the way, Christianity, when it's misunderstood, it becomes religion just like everything else, all right? And it's essentially just this ladder, because what religion is, is man's way of getting to God. What are the things that I can do? What are the prayers that I pray? What are the habits that I have to put in place in my life? What are the things that I do to basically get to God? And we've all probably been there, but let me just, let me just tell you what happens when, when we get caught up in religion instead of what Jesus was really teaching, okay? This is what happens. So we set, we set out, and we're like, okay, cool. I've got the holy book, whatever holy book, whatever inspired text, whatever prophet, whatever, okay? And it's like, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what I'm not supposed to do. And so you start at it. And you're like, okay, this is great, man. I'm rocking it. I'm getting up the ladder. This is so amazing, you know? And, and, and you do that, and you, you're like, you're, you're well on your way. And then you realize that um, you've only been awake for 10 minutes of your day. And so... <laughs> You know, as you, then you start to fumble and you start to fail and you start to realize, oh my goodness, I'm not living up to this. God, I want to do all these things, but man, I'm just not disciplined enough. I haven't done this enough. And you find yourself, you're, you're staggering and you're stumbling at the bottom of the ladder. And there's all this stuff, man, if I could just be more religious, if I could just be more dedicated and you're down here and we've all had those moments, haven't we? You're down here. You've blown it. How do you feel right here? You feel ashamed. You feel guilty. You're a failure. Are you bold in your prayers to God? Are you like, oh, God's going to hear my prayers now? No, because you're down here. When you're here at the bottom of the ladder and you've stumbled and you haven't measured up to these religious standards, you're defeated. Okay? The bottom of the ladder leaves you defeated. But let's just say that you have a heck of a run, okay? Because you're a better person than me, so maybe you can get like all the way up the ladder. I'm not going all the way to the top. Don't worry. This is, this is the top. <laughs> and, um, and you're doing everything right. I mean, you are just killing it in terms of, in terms of your religious belief. And you're just knocking it out of the park. And here you sit. And how do you feel now? You're just loving life, aren't you? You feel so incredibly good. Almost entitled. You ever felt that way? You've had a good run? It's like, I know God's going to hear my prayers. And if he doesn't, I'm going to be a little ticked off. Okay? But here's the other thing. When we're up here on the ladder, and I'm sure this isn't you, but it's definitely me. When I've been up here on this religious ladder, all of a sudden, I'm kind of noticing, wow, there's a lot of people down there. There's a lot of you guys down there. 
I noticed that you, you haven't been, you know, spending three hours reading your Bible this morning like I was. You know, that makes me a little bit better than you in God's eyes. And you can go through all the different religious things or all the ways we serve or all whatever, okay? And here's the thing. When we get up to this point in the ladder where we are religiously awesome, it doesn't leave us defeated. It leaves us conceited. We become conceited. And all of a sudden, we're better than other people. And you know, it's really, really hard to love people from here. I mean, you can, you can say you do, and you can try your best. It's really hard to serve people humbly from here. It's really hard to forgive anybody from right here. It just is. This is the ladder of religion. And this is not what Jesus came to do. Essentially, what Jesus said was, and what Paul spends so many of his letters reminding us, is that actually... There is no ladder tall enough to work your way to God. It's impossible. And the starting point for this whole deal is basically to admit, I might as well not even get on the ladder because I can't, I can't possibly. How, how arrogant of me to even think I could climb all the way to God's standard. And so what Christianity postulates is this. Instead of us climbing our way up to God, God said, you know what? I'm going to come right down here. I'm going to come to this earth. I'm going to take on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know this is kind of mind-boggling if you're here and you're just trying to wrestle with this stuff and figure it out. This is where it gets, you, it just makes your head want to explode, okay? But, but this is what Jesus claimed. So he was either crazy or there's some truth to it. He basically said, look, I'm coming down to this earth and it's not based on what you've done, but I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to take on all the sin, all the evil, all, all the stuff in the world that is not good, I'm going to take that all on myself. I'm going to swallow it up. And in the, most, in the greatest demonstration of love that has ever been done, Jesus laid down his life for us so that no matter anything bad we've done, a past just as bad as Paul's, or any of our current struggles, or even future struggles, those have all already been dealt with. They've been taken care of. And Jesus simply says that it, all you have to do is, is just believe in me. Just put faith in me. And when you do that, you're made righteous in the eyes of God. Now, that might sound crazy, but think about it, Ben. Think about it. The ladder of religion versus the cross of Jesus Christ. When you're here, at your worst, you're defeated, and you're pretty much useless. At your best, you think you're better than everybody else, and you're really, we, we know people like that. None of you in this room are like that, but you know we know people like that. And they're not cool. They're not fun to be around, okay? Versus here. Because you know where this leaves you? If you fully grasp it, it leaves you deeply humbled. There's no ladder. There's no effort. There's nothing that we can do. Nothing. It's only in him and through faith in him that we may approach God with freedom and confidence. It leaves us deeply humbled at the foot of the cross saying, it's not about me, it never was, it never will be. But at the same time, and here's the amazing thing, we are left supremely confident. Not in ourselves, because we're going to mess up at some point. We're going to fall off the ladder at some point. We're going to blow it. But we're confident in the fact that there is a God who has come and entered the pages of human history 
and has actually given us tangible evidence of his existence. Do you understand that? You can look at extra biblical texts. You can look at stuff outside the Bible. There was a person named Jesus of Nazareth. There's no doubt that he lived. There is no doubt he was amazing in the things that he taught. There is no doubt he had incredible following. And I mean, all this stuff that happened, there is no doubt that he was crucified for his claims to be God. There's no doubt. Now, there's, there is significant doubt over what the heck happened after he died. But there's a whole bunch of people that strangely went to their graves because all, they just, ref, they just refused. They would not be quiet. They just kept saying, we've seen him. We, we just, I'm sorry, we, we just saw him. He, he ate with us. We saw the nail marks. I mean, he just, he rose. He's my God. He's my Lord. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were killed for their claims. And so we can be supremely confident, deeply humble. It's not about us, but supremely confident that there is a God. He does exist. And he has demonstrated his love for us by coming to this earth, showing us how to live and doing the most amazing expression of love, dying a sacrificial death for us. It's awesome, you guys. This is Christianity. And this is what Paul grasped. So I'm going to ask our music team to come out now. And um, we're, going to, we're going to close the service a little bit differently than we normally do. Because what I want to do right now is actually to read out Paul's prayer that he prays in the final part of this chapter of the lesson, verses 14 through 20. And um, here's what's so cool about this, you guys. Paul here is basically praying that his readers would grasp the very thing he already has grasped. Paul has grasped it, so, grasped it so well, he's deeply humble and supremely confident. And he's just basically saying, oh, if my readers 2,000 years ago, and if my readers today, by extension, that's us, could grasp this, oh man, how amazing would that be? What could God do? And so um, the team's gonna, they're, they're gonna play as, as um, I pray this prayer. I wanna pray this prayer over you as we close out the service and then we're going to sing a couple choruses and then we're going to go eat our faces off outside uh, of that Casa Chiralagua delicious food that's out there. Um, but here's what I want you to do. As a, as a way of saying, you know what? I am ready to receive this prayer. I want to grasp this gospel. I want to know this love. I, as a way of, of you kind of representing that actively, I want to ask you to stand. Stand as a way of saying, yes, I'm going to receive this I'm standing to receive this prayer. This is one of the greatest prayers in the entire Bible. I just want you to just, just take it in, allow God to just speak to you right here, okay? So if you just bow your heads. Ephesians 3, 14 through 20. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love 
that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.